Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. This is another episode of our Precision Pioneers mini-series, and I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Oscar Segurado, who is the Chief Medical Officer at ASC Therapeutics, which is developing gene therapies for rare disease using CRISPR. Oscar's a medical doctor, and he's worked on the cutting edge of precision medicine for essentially his whole career, so I'm really excited to have him here today and to be able to pick his brain on what the future of personalized medicine might look like. So thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Patrick. I'm really excited about this conversation, and I know Sana Genetics. You have a great team there. I've been interacting with some of them, so happy to be here in your podcast. Great. Thank you so much, Oscar. I'd love to actually just jump right into talking about CRISPR and its use as a therapeutics tool since at ASC you all are, are working right at the cutting edge here. Could you just explain to anyone who's not familiar what CRISPR is and, and how you all are applying it to treatments for rare diseases? I think, thank you, uh, Patrick. So I think it would be useful if I start telling you a little bit about myself and, and the company I'm working for. Great. So I'm a physician scientist. Um, I've been working in clinical development and translational medicine, meaning bringing uh, uh, lab work, you know, of course, genetics, genomics to the patient bed. And uh, in the past 10 years, I've been focusing on cell therapy and gene therapy. My background is in immunology and cell therapy and um, molecular biology. And I joined um, ASC Therapeutics in 2019. Originally, this company was uh, built as a life sciences manufacturing provider for biopharmaceutical companies. And the company derived some of their work from interactions with the Stanford University. And at the Stanford University, as you can imagine, they have been working on CRISPR and other gene editing technologies for many, many years. One of these technologies is called Target. And Target was the origin of the original company, Applied Stem Cell. That's why we're called ASC Therapeutics. And this proprietary technology is the basis of working with other biopharmas where we put together line cells, animal models, and in addition, while we were already working on that, practically is when the CRISPR um, field exploded and we in-licensed that from our colleagues at Berkeley University up the road in some way. And uh, with that uh, work, we started helping others. And at some point, the company decided, okay, now we want to start developing therapies ourselves. We want to deploy our know-how on CRISPR on Target, which is this other uh, technology that I mentioned, and, and also the standard gene therapy technology for different diseases. So they started incubating about four years ago this kind of work. And that's what they, when they brought me in, and I am extraordinarily uh, lucky to be with a, with a company that is really uh, work uh, um, growing very, very rapidly. And indeed, as you mentioned, we are working with CRISPR technology to support rare diseases. And um, I would be happy to explain that to you. That's just the, the, the kind of the basic understanding, the history of where we are right now. Excellent. Yeah, it would be great to dive into an example of uh, where you all are applying CRISPR to, to treat rare disease. And I'd also love to learn about some of the other technologies that are maybe not, not as mainstream, but uh, you know, certainly stem cell and uh, cell therapies in general are an enormous field. So maybe we can start talking about CRISPR and then uh, talk about some of the cell therapy side of things as well. 
Yeah, so, so CRISPR is a technology that allows us, the, the world, the, the scientists, to manipulate any gene and being able to either replace it or make some changes on, on, on this gene that uh, make it functional, especially when is either deleted or is non-functional, uh, non-functional. And that's what happens with a disease that I'm going to give you as an example, which is the one we're working on. The disease is hemophilia. Hemophilia is a disease that happens when any of the clotting factors that are required for blood coagulation is not working. And there are two major clotting factors that are missing in patients with hemophilia, either factor eight, or factor nine. And we have started working on factor eight, although we have the same technology and we plan to use it with factor nine. When an individual has a failure on factor eight, the cascade of clotting factors, because this is the way the blood clots, does not work because something is missing. So you need to replace that factor eight. And that's uh, where we started working maybe about five or six years ago, first in animal models. And we started replacing in these um, uh, mice that had already a deletion on this factor eight and replacing it with CRISPR. It worked. So it was published in Nature. And um, with this information, we started working on uh, a next generation of a factor eight replacement gene. So the in general, the, the 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 way it has been done, because this is a work that started maybe 20 years ago, I mean any kind of gene manipulation for helping patients with hemophilia A, and hemophilia A is the one where there is a a, a missing factor eight. Everyone has been using a factor eight that is basically the same as the human, the regular human factor eight. What differentiates our work is that we decided to um, uh, in-license work that had been done at the Emory University and a company called Expression Therapeutics, where they created a chimeric porcine human gene. So you would say, okay, you are mixing pig sequences Human sequences. Yeah, what could go wrong? Everything <laughs> is going to go wrong. That's the first thought that anyone can have, except that Emory University had been working on something called ancestral sequences of factor eight for almost three decades, and part of that the, uh, of that work became one of the most successful factor eight repra- replacement therapies. It's called Obisur. It was in licensed by Takeda and is still one of the top replacement therapies. And by the way, this is almost entirely porcine sequences. So all, I'm, I'm giving you a little bit um, the story, which I think is very important. I, I never had a, really an opportunity as I have today to explain this because what they figure out with these decades of experience and this developing Obisur, again, a branded FDA-approved uh, uh, factor eight for patients with hemophilia A, is that they realized that there were cer- certain sequences that allowed the factor eight, one, it was incorporated into any cell, 
to be more efficiently processed, it's called biosynthesis, and more efficiently secreted from the cell. And because everyone is now very familiar with mRNA vaccines, I can tell you that there are several similarities here. So when I talk about this, because now it's in the mainstream media, you're going to understand that when you get a vaccine, you get the mRNA, everyone knows, messenger RNA, it goes into a cell and it starts producing proteins that are the ones that are very similar to COVID-19. In our case, we don't provide the mRNA, we provide the DNA. So, and this DNA is transcribed into mRNA. So it's a kind of a step earlier. And that's also what happens with other vaccines like, the, like Johnson & Johnson. So, but we do that, we, that that's the way we, we treat these patients. We provide them um, uh, some DNA. This DNA is integrated into the chromosomes of the, of, of the cell and it starts uh, producing mRNA and the mRNA produces protein, which is factor eight, and is secreted to the circulation. Okay, because we use these porcine sequences from the pig, which is 9% of the entire uh, gene that we are, is called transgene, this protein is much more efficiently processed, biosynthesized and secreted, than regular human proteins. This is the work that we, are, we have been doing over the past, especially since I joined the company in 2019. And now we are ready to present all the data that we have produced in animal models, in three different types of animal models. It's called uh, wild-type mice, humanized mice, and also with uh, primates, with monkeys. This data is now put together in a, in a package that has thousands and thousands of pages. <laughs> and is going to, to be submitted to the FDA in the next few months. So I expect, because my role, I'm chief medical officer, my role is conduct clinical trials, but I mean, I need to know a little bit more than that. And we are planning to start putting this transgene, this chimeric transgene into patients sometime this summer. This is going to start what we call a phase one, two clinical trial that is going to look into safety, is going to look into the efficiency, efficiencies of how we are able to produce this factor eight in these individuals. We're working with some of the top experts in the field, especially Professor Stephen Pipe from the University of Michigan, and he totally endorses our approach. This is fascinating. I have, uh, I have 20, 20 questions at least, but the first one I want to ask is, where are you actually inserting the gene? Is it into blood stem cells so that it can then produce many more healthy cells? Because uh, I think that's probably one of the big challenges here, right? Of where do you actually make the make the edit so that you don't have to continually edit over and over? Excellent question. And guess what? As I mentioned, we in license Factor 8 from the Emory University and a company, a spin-off company called Expression Therapeutics. So what we licensed from them was the potential of using not only the transgene, but also something called a promoter, which is the one that really makes the protein the production uh, when we do the gene therapy. Excuse me, in case of gene, we are still in CRISPR <laughs> uh, treatment. So there we, we, we are 
we are um, uh, really only on, on only uh, using the transgene and using a promoter already in the in the genome. When we do that, we are we are inserting the gene, which was your question, into a hepatocyte, the chromosome of of a hepatocyte, which is a liver cell. So we use the cells of the body, in this case, a liver cell, a hepatocyte, as a biofactory. It's a chemical factory. So it's the one that is going to take all this information and start producing everything. When you take the COVID vaccine, an mRNA, you use any cell, usually cells in your muscles, and they are going to present because there is no release. So these, these spike proteins from the COVID are expressed in the, in the surface of the cell and the immune system recognizes that and is going to start um, producing antibodies and, and T cells that are going to create uh, the immunity. In our case, we release factor eight, but the process is similar. Okay. We are using a cell as a biofactory. Now, this is what we are doing. But the company that initially licensed to us the therapy is also using a ver- the exact same chimeric transgene in stem cells. So the answer to you is that you can do that both ways. So we are doing that in two ways. We are using CRISPR and we are also using what is standard gene therapy where we are going to uh, provide the transgene plus a promoter, and I can explain that in a moment if you want to see the difference between CRISPR and gene therapy. And and again, we use these cells that are the ones that are, are, are going to start producing uh, the, this protein. Now, it doesn't matter if you use stem cells or the hepatocyte. At the end of the day, you are forcing one cell to do something that is not used to do. Because even if you think, and this is real, Factor eight is usually produced in the liver. People that get a, a, a liver transplantation with hemophilia, boof, from one day to another, they're cured. So, but we know that that production is not happening in the hepatocytes. So we are forcing a cell to do something that is not used to do. The hepatocyte produce hundreds and hundreds of proteins. Again, it's a huge chemical factory with the assembly line and everything there but not this factor eight. So that's why everything that we're doing is going to help um, um, hepatocyte be more efficient producing factor eight. That makes complete sense. I I would love if you could actually give a little bit of a high-level taxonomy of gene therapy, CRISPR, stem cell therapy. How do these, uh, there's, they're overlapping, semi-overlapping categories sometimes. You could give a high-level overview of, because um, I think you all work across a number of these areas, which is relatively unique. And I think because of the the way that, that ASC started and has now moved into being a therapeutics company is probably the um, part of the reason for this rather than someone arriving with a new technology or, or molecule and then being laser focused on that. So yeah, if, if you could, I think that would be great. Sure, glad to do that. And uh, I, um, uh, at some point, uh, I, I was able to to uh, um, achieve a tenure professorship in uh, the University of Lyon in Spain, which I still maintain a little bit remote in this case. But um, I like to teach, and I can tell you the way I teach gene therapy and gene editing, so that everyone can understand that. And I use an analogy. My analogy is. 
Apollo 11 is how to how we were able the humanity to get to the moon and i think this analogy works because we we need a number uh, we need and we needed a number of elements let's start with this this is this is <laughs> for those who can't see he's got a he's got a plastic rocket on screen so uh <laughs> It's a plastic rocket. You won't believe where is this plastic <laughs> rocket coming from. It was a, a guy that was also uh, seeing some slides that I use for this analogy. And he said, hey, look, I have a 3D printer and I have already a rocket and a module and uh, and, uh, and everything. So you're going to see more pieces that he sent me over the mail, the, the mail for free. So this is the rocket. and And the rocket is... The virus we use an AAV virus is an adenovirus, and this this kind of virus is totally harmless. And what it does is that it has tropism. We use one that is called AAV eight serotype eight, which has tropism for the hepatocyte. So we have all the information in this rocket, which is what the patient receives as an infusion. Now, this rocket finds the hepatocyte, goes into it, goes into the, it gets into the nucleus, and now imagine that the chromosome inside the nucleus is the moon, okay? So there are two ways to deal with this. This is now the other piece that the individual sent me. And this is the capsule. I call it more the lunar module. And here, is the promoter, and by the way, they can be separated, okay? So, this is what we put around the nucleus, around the chromosome, inside the nucleus. This is DNA, and this is a piece of information that tells this DNA to start producing mRNA, okay? So when we use gene therapy, these two elements are orbiting the moon and the promoter tells the, the transgene to start transcribing and producing mRNA. This mRNA goes into, uh, into the endoplasmic reticulum, uh, Golgi apparatus in the cytoplasm and it starts producing factor eight and releasing it. This is standard gene therapy. Now, let's go to CRISPR. When we use the CRISPR technology, we don't have this. We only have this, okay? So it's just the DNA, not the... It's just, it's just the DNA. But we need to do something else. We need to send... We send two rockets. The first rocket has the CRISPR-Cas9 machinery. And what it does, and I don't have, unfortunately, anything to show you here, is that it makes a cut. It has something called guide RNA. So it knows where to go into the chromosome. So it goes now into the moon, which is the chromosome. It identifies a very specific concrete site where, that you want to manipulate. And it has attached to that Cas9, which is an enzyme. And this enzyme produces a double-stranded cut. Boom, a cut. This is what we call also knockout. Now, 
the second rocket has now this DNA. It now follows practically the lead of the previous rocket and lands in the moon. This is the lunar module now. Right. And okay. you set up a colony and uh, never leave, right? You even open us a little bit here. <laughs> Perfect. I don't know how these, printers, how these 3D printers work, but uh, it's amazing. So, Pretty impressive. Now, you are in, on the moon. You are inside the chromosome. And since you don't have this, which is the promoter that is telling you how to start producing protein, we located in a very specific site that requires a lot of work that we have been doing to know exactly which, ex which exon in which area needs to be so that we have another, it's called um, uh, another promoter. Um, it's called Safe Harbor Promoter. And the one that we use is for albumin. Albumin is a protein that, you know, is continuously measured in blood is one of the most efficient promoters we have in the body because albumin is an essential protein that we need to for everything to function. So we put that 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 um, DNA coding for factor eight close to the existing promoter for albumin, and this this uh, factor eight starts to just work like before, producing an mRNA for factor eight, protein for factor eight, and secreting factor eight. That's the CRISPR-Cas9 machinery. What a great metaphor. I love that. That's going to stick with me forever. So the really what it boils down to is, is the DNA being integrated into the genome, at which point you've, you've really latched onto the albumin promoter and the part of the genome machinery to allow the, the, um, DNA, which encodes for the protein to continue to be produced versus in the gene therapy approach. I love this idea of its orbiting. So you've, you, and, and I guess in that case, you've got to generally speaking, continuously reinfuse the gene and promoter, right? Because it only works for some time or is, or is that not the case? This is an excellent question, which is still open. There are many companies that believe it or not, we are a very tiny company, comp company compared with Pfizer. Roche, Baumarin, they're working with this fully human uh, uh, gene on, 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 on this gene therapy. So we think that we can, uh, we can maintain and make this protein production more durable because that's exactly the point. The problem is first, the mo Since you are not integ integrating the, 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 the gene into the chromosome landing on the moon, if this hepatocyte divides, you lose everything. You don't have anything. And that's what happens with children. That's why this therapy right now by everyone in the, in the field is only useful. I mean, not gene editing. I'm talking about gene therapy for patients that are 18 years old, 18 years or older. Now, gene editing, CRISPR, because you are integrating the gene into the chromosome, if this cell divides, like happens in children, because your liver is growing, liver yeah. is growing yeah. no problem. That's going to work. So we're going to be the first 
to be able to look into what is called in vivo CRISPR therapy for patients with hemophilia A. That's fascinating. So why why did you all choose hemophilia A as the first first focal point? I assume you know there's a, probably the sky's the limit in terms of the other liver based and potentially also blood based disorders which where the proteins are produced in the liver. Um, I, you're not, I know you're not always able to talk about where else you're thinking about, but I'd love to hear why, why start in hemophilia and, and any, you know, thoughts on, on what, what else is out there in terms of opportunities. You, you know, when, when we speak with, uh, venture capitalists, investors and private equity and so on and tell them what we're doing, they say, are you crazy? So you're working in the most crowded space in, in, in the field. Exactly what you said. The reason hemophilia A is so relevant is because, again, the first wor- work started in in, in um, almost two, two decades ago. The first patients were treated five, six years ago by some of the companies I mentioned. With gene therapies. With gene therapies. Gene editing, no one has ever done it yet. So this is we're going to be the first. But we we thought that because of all this amount of information, they are continue, we are continuously, even yesterday, I had, I, I, I attended a convention and most, it was called gene therapies in, in blood disorders and about half of the, of the meeting was devoted to hemophilia. You learn a lot. You have already all the information there. So we have examples. We have publications. We have, um, a specific guideline from the FDA on hemophilia. So we, are going into a field that has already such an amount of, of know-how that we are going to refine it. So that's why there are so many copycats now from, from Tesla because they've, they've put away, the, yeah. the, the ideas out there and now there are a uh, hundred different electric uh, vehicles out there. I don't think that's a problem. I think that that's again how science and how uh, biopharmaceutical companies work. So we we feel comfortable with that. Now there are several other areas that have been very successful, and I've been part of that. I've been working with Avexis. It's a company that was focusing on um, uh, spinal muscular atrophy, the SMN1 gene, and the company was acquired by Roche for uh, uh, close to eight billion dollars, and now is one of the most successful therapies because it treats these patients with gene therapy, and the therapy is called Solgensma. So I, I was part of the company for a couple of, of years. So so I, I, I think that we are, and we shouldn't forget this, this is the start. We are in the early stages of gene therapy, gene editing, and all that. Now, there are several companies, CRISPR Therapeutics, Editas Medi- Medicine, there is Intelia, there are uh, Sangamo working also with uh, an alternative to CRISPR, uh, nucleases. So, uh, so sync fingers, nucleases. So there are many different companies working in different spaces, but I think that's the explanation for hemophilia A. And we're, 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 uh, a small fish in a, a small pond, I would say too. <laughs> yeah. But I think the, as you say, the, the tidal wave is coming, right? There's, a, it's, it's only the beginning. What, what are the general, so moving beyond hemophilia, what are the general characteristics of a disease for which Gene editing is a is a viable approach for for treatment. In general, all these advanced bi- biologic therapies have an intrinsic benefit of being precise tools for manipulating human biology that you know that you understand. So that's the first thing that needs to happen. Right now, there are over five thousand 
genetic diseases that we can call monogenic. So there is one single gene, gene that fails for whatever reason. And in, the, in many of them, we understand the biology. So those are diseases that we can target. Now, there are about 100,000 genes that are associated with common diseases like diabetes, heart disease, and so on. But they are multigenic. So you really cannot try to spend your money, your time on, on making any kind of uh, gene therapy or, or gene editing because you don't know what's going to happen. But in, the, in cases like Avexis I mentioned with, uh, with um, uh, SMN1, we knew that if we were able to replace that protein, these children that usually die with one year or two years of age are going to live forever. And this is what is happening. Some of them are now, I think, close to eight years old. So, so we, 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 with hemophilia is the same. Or this is a disease where it's one single gene. We know that we need to replace, to replace factor eight. There is also a number of diseases in the, in, in, in the central nervous system, also in, in, uh, liver, uh, related, um, monogenic diseases that we're also working on. I mean, work, the industry. So we have several ideas. There is also sickle cell anemia, beta thalassemia where the, the, the changes that you make are in stem cells. You don't touch the liver. You, you take the, the stem cells from the individual, you manipulate them and put them back into the individual, and they start producing what is missing in sickle cell therapy. The, 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 there is also, you, you need to get the right uh, uh, size and, 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 and uh, form of the, of, of the red blood cell. So, so uh, we... we are very targeted on diseases that we know from, especially from uh, uh, from experimental models, animal models, that that we are able to reach uh, a positive result. And I guess the delivery is a big challenge if we think about neurology, for example, in in a disease like ALS, where the genetics is starting to be really well understood, but delivering the rocket using your analogy to to the brain is is still a big challenge whereas in in blood stem cells or or the liver you've got you've got a much easier route to get to the tissue uh, absolutely uh, but again with ALS that's one of these diseases that probably multigenic and that means that it's probably going very difficult to although there might be some patients with ALS that have a single genetic mutation and you could treat them. So you first need to also do all the genomics that you guys do very nicely at Sana Genetics and identify those patients, where is the mutation, and then see if those patients are, are, are really the ones that you can treat with uh, either gene editing or, or gene therapy. Yeah, that's uh, that's completely clear. So you, you mentioned earlier that as a chief medical officer, one of the biggest things you're thinking about all day is how to design and run clinical trials. And I'm, I'm interested in what are the challenges that you face using a very new technology. I, th I think, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you all will hopefully be the first to to do this with a, integrating into the genome. And it sounds like there's a group of patients, including young, young children, where this will be totally unique. What challenges do you face in designing clinical studies? And um, these examples where there's no existing therapies, the route through the FDA is often... Um, not particularly clear, although a little bit better trodden in, in hemophilia A. I'd, I'd love to hear more about how that differs from 
uh, your past experiences with maybe more more well-trodden clinical paths? So um, great question, and I can tell you uh, multiple challenges. But we have some advantages. Number one of all of that is that the FDA has opened their arms, and they're even asking all the, let's call it competitors, to work together. They have sometimes even two-day uh, seminars where they bring all the, all the companies and they start talking about all these challenges. Now, again, I've been working with, for instance, with the Humira team. At that time, it was monoclonal antibodies. It was something relatively new. It was a biological therapy. We, we were coming from, from small um, molecules. And when I was working with Abbott AV for over 15 years, I, I, I really learned a lot in terms of clinical development. But, but so all these learnings, at the end of the day, uh, the clinical development hasn't changed. So you have first have to do your phase one, two. You have to uh, do a dose-ranging study. What dose is the adequate for the patients? Then you move into the so-called pivotal trials where you demonstrate that indeed your, your, your uh, drug, your therapy is safe and effective. That hasn't changed. Now, and I'm, I'm doing that following the book in terms of uh, the, the, the typical uh, standards. Now, there is, there is something that is unique to gene therapy and gene editing. And I was not aware of that really when I joined uh, um, first Avexis and then ISC Therapeutics. And this is that even as a chief medical officer, I have to understand key aspects of manufacturing, analytics, and um, even what is called um, PNL, which is which is understanding the way you produce the drug and the way you, you deliver it. So it's the kind of the supply chain from the place where it's produced until you really put that in the patient. And this is extraordinarily complex. I am involved because when you are in a small company, if necessary, you, you also change bulbs. I'm involved directly in the manufacturing um, decisions. Obviously, I don't do that directly myself, but I, uh, we are looking very carefully into our CMO, uh, our uh, the company that is doing all the manufacturing. And because of our previous experience as a life sciences um, manufacturer, we are able to also uh, be completely involved. We are planning to uh, develop a pilot um, manufacturing facility in, in our in our in our headquarters, and also start having a larger scaled manufacturing facility over time. But this is something that is extremely complex. The way you put together this, yeah, the rocket. <laughs> I can tell you, the rocket is extraordinarily complex. This has nothing to do with with putting together a monoclonal antibody which shows cells that that's the way we do that you we use different cells we use three plasmids they need to be cooked with a special uh recipe uh it fails many times so you 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 need just to get the material that you need for one single patient the first patient that i'm going to be treating sometime this summer is going to take us weeks and weeks if not months of work for one single dose and the cost, the average cost in the industry for one single dose, the cost, standard cost is close to $1 million. Wow. Which is, I think, a great segue into one of the biggest challenges in rare disease, which is the, the cost uh, of, 
of producing and then ultimately as a result the price to patients healthcare system it sounds like you're starting from you know the manufacturing costs as you go up the the price will go down or the cost will go down but it's not going to go down to cents like it uh, like it might for a, a small molecule how how do you think about the industry challenges as a whole in balancing these transformative therapies with the the incredible costs and what are the levers that we have as an industry to you know to to help balance the books a little bit better good point uh, you I, I think you have noticed by the, this point that i like analogies so let, let's go back to to the electric vehicles so the first tesla the tesla whatever uh, the sports car was under fifty thousand dollars now they're mentioning that the next one, the first one is going to be 20,000, but there are companies already out there announcing and they have electric vehicles for about $5,000. Uh, so, so that's going to happen. So it's a matter of time. Now, we are not worried about having uh, Solgensma, the, 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 the drug uh, that I was working on with Avexis, right now is $2.1 million. The company was acquired by, Novarti, um, by Novartis. And, um, and, uh, it's working very well. So there are many countries and, and the most of the, of, of the healthcare systems are paying for it. Why is that? Because, I mean, you tell, uh, the, the parents that have a very happy, are very happy with their child and they are telling them your child is going to die within one year. So you're going to find that money and the system is going to find that money because you, you, you're going to, uh, make this per, the, the, this, this kid having an, an absolutely normal life. And I just read a few weeks ago that, uh, the early, the, the, the youngest child was treated, treated with Solgensma and I think it was two weeks old. Okay. So yes, that's the, that's the cost. And, and this is a, a, an issue. We will have to work with, on that now. The cost is going to go down. There's no doubt about that. Now, but let me go to the hemophilia. The, in hemophilia, you have these patients that need to get replacement therapy weekly. And the cost, the yearly cost for these patients, counting with everything, including the potential for several types of, of uh, side effects and, and problems associated to that, could be around, I think, the average in the U.S., obviously, I'm speaking about, quarter of a million per year. Should you just multiply? In four years, one million. In 40 years, 10 million. So, so this therapy is going to be very costly. Now, no one knows how is it going to work in the United States. If you use the American system where there are health insurance and these health insurers don't know if you're going to be with the company two months or two years or 20 years, why should they pay $2 million for a hemophilia therapy that is going to benefit another health insurer? So we're, as an industry and the entire healthcare um, uh, companies are working on that and figuring that out. Now, this is not a problem in the majority, I would say, of the Western countries, Canada, UK, and the entire Europe, and many other countries around the world that have universal healthcare. In that case, there is no problem. They are going to uh, do their math. They are going to calculate and they say, okay, I have to, con to, to maintain this person anyway because this uh, individual is 20 years old and in general, uh, the average life of a hemophilia A patient uh, is going to be, I don't know, 
up to 70 years. So I have to pay for all these cars for 50 years. Now you're telling me that the company is going to give me a one and done, one single infusion, this couple of rockets and everything is going to be done in, in, in 30 minutes. And it's going to cost me 2 million or to the healthcare system is going to cost 2 million. They are doing it. So they're already considering it's happening. Yeah, I think it's such a great point. The one concern that I have is there whether whether the pace at which the cost comes down, if that goes more slowly than the pace at which smart companies and scientists like you start inventing new therapies, we may end up with with the case which is a, a win for patients in which many of these five thousand rare monogenic diseases that don't have treatments all of a sudden have treatments. But they're all they all cost two million dollars and and at the moment the healthcare system just isn't with the exception of things like hemophilia paying for it um there are other cases where where patients are just simply you know dying at a young age for example um and then you you have this net positive clearly for the world and for patients but the healthcare system can't cope i'm i'm wondering if you do do you have can you give me a layer of optimism that the manufacturing costs will start to come down quickly enough that that this won't be a problem this is not my field, manufacturing costs and so on, but I, I can tell you that uh, we are all seeing that is happening. <clears throat> it's going to happen. Now, I think that the system is going to adjust to that. It's going to adapt. Uh, and, and I can tell you the health insurance are smart enough and they're not going to go bankrupt. So they're, they're, they have their, their stockholders out there. So they're, they're simply going to deny. Uh, um, uh, therapies for other people, and they're going to tell them, okay, stay in with your current therapy and so on. So uh, many patients, and we're encouraging some of them, are joining st- stat- studies. The Biomarine study uh, recently included 300 patients. So all these 300 patients are getting it for free. And uh, once we finish our phase one clinical trial, we're going to have also another 300 patients that are going to get our therapies for free. So, so I, you know, everyone is going to, to see things going their way and everyone is going to adapt to that. I'm not concerned with, with costs. We're working on it. Great. Yeah. It does seem like, um, certainly the, the, all the incentives and the market pressures are there that, um, these, contract manufacturing organizations and technology developers will it's it's high on a lot of people's lists i think to figure out how to get these things down by orders of magnitude um we're coming up close to the hour here so i I wanted to maybe just finish with a another high level question you've worked at the front leading edge of precision medicine for basically your whole career Um, i'm curious what obstacles you see in place to us living in a world in 10 years 20 years 30 years time where everyone has access to precision or, or personalized therapies. I'd love to hear a, what that world looks like to you um, and B what, what are the critical things that we need to accomplish in order to get there? So let me start saying that uh, gene therapy, gene editing uh, are the culprit of, of personalized medicine, because first of all, these are rare diseases. We're, we're really pinpointing into a gene that is not working and we are replacing and we are um, curing it. So this is not a therapy. This is a cure in many cases. So this is the, the ultimate personalized medicine in some way. Now, I mentioned at some point the hepatocyte, that we're using the hepatocyte of individuals as a chemical factory. Okay, so I'm because of my background and experience 
in genomics and, and, and personalized medicine, precision medicine. I am also working, which is going to be different from other companies working with hemophilia aging therapy, on ensuring that we identify all the critical elements of the hepatocyte of each and every patient that receives our drug so that we personalize the therapy to that individual and we start understanding which individuals are going to respond better than others. That's one of the problems that we have seen in hemophilia A. And this is that there is a large variability. Some patients, and nobody knows why, do not respond. So the rocket stuff and the orbiting... <laughs> Uh, capsule and, and promoter are not doing their job. With other people, it works perfectly. So there is a large variability and nobody understands that. We are going to look into that. Our company, the, the, especially under my leadership, we're going to look into a number of uh, ways to look into how this liver of this individual has been working over the past several years. Retrospectively, we're going to look if, if there was any kind of, a kind of infection, uh, liver li liver infection, especially hepatitis B and C. And we're also going to look into the way the, the function and the structure of the liver works. We're going to do ultrasound every six months. We're going to look into a number of biomarkers in collaboration with Siemens. They have developed some biomarkers that indicate the potential of fibrosis. So we are going to follow up each and every patient in our clinical trials and it has never been done before. So this is going, that's why I like to uh, talk in, in my, when, when I have uh, um, speak uh, engagements, I, I, I talk about gene therapy and precision medicine. So I'm combining both. And I think that that's extraordinarily important. Yeah, that is. And, and this, this issue of variability, both in presentation of you know, disease course and symptoms and response to treatment, in rare disease, I, I think is a, is a big challenge because we we know that this is the case in common disease um, from numerous studies because there are enough people. We know it's the case in rare disease anecdotally, but the numbers are often too small to really understand in a in a statistically rigorous way why is it that um, you know that, that patients with this already rare disease actually are are rare subtypes. So I think the approach is you describe as the right one, whereas with, it's to gather as much information as you can and follow as long as you can to really, because um, when you have the patients that are going through the incredibly rigorous clinical program that you've already got going and you've built this base of incredible data from the start, it makes sense to to get as much information as you can out of that. Otherwise, someone will have to go back and, and do it again from scratch in an academic lab and, and it's going to cost millions of dollars all over again that... Um, that could have been uh, that could have been avoided. Just want to say thank you so much. This was an incredibly enlightening interview, and and in particular, I think you, you're probably the best in the business at explaining some of these really complex concepts using accessible analogies. So so thank you for that. I think I'm going to reuse the uh, the rocket analogy certainly in the future, and I'll I'll give you due credit for it. Um, so thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it, and uh, I hope everybody checks you out on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and what is what is the website they can visit if they want to learn more about you all's work? I, I would say that is www.actherapeutics.com, and they can also Google my name, and uh, I also uh, they they are going to see some other aspects uh, of, of my work. Great. Well, thank you so much. And uh, it's it's Friday. Well, it's Friday morning for you. It's Friday evening for me here in uh, in the UK. If you were in Spain, you would be uh, you'd be done. But uh, the, I think the pandemic has 
has got you has prevented travel back but um thank you so much and look forward to talking again soon thank you so much patrick great great pleasure speaking with you today thank you for listening to this episode of the genetics podcast if you enjoyed the podcast we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on your favorite podcast player or even better you can tell a friend who you think might like it too as always you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com We really love to hear from you all about any feedback you have, guests you'd like to hear from, or topics that you'd like to see us cover in the future. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.